Alright, you good to go, yeah. Noreen? Yep, yep, fine, thank you. Okay. Show starting in five, four, three, two, one. Live from London, this is The Late Show with Noreen Khalid on Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening. The time is 8 o'clock on the 23rd of February and we are live on Teachers Talk Radio. On tonight's show, we will be having a wide-ranging discussion with Lloyd Lindsay's where we will be talking about young people on margins, children with scent, and children, teacher retention, policy, etc. Call in or text if you have any questions. For Live you. from London, this is The Late Show with Noreen Khalid on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Very warm welcome to you all. Um, I can see Loik's in the studio. Uh, hi, Loik. Welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Hi there. Lovely to be here. Thanks Hello. for having me on. Now, thank you for saying for agreeing to be a guest on on you know late Wednesday evening. Um, so let's let's start first. Um, so we've got Lloyd Menzies with us, um, and I'm really excited to have Lo the fabulous Lloyd with me today. Um, he Lloyd is a researcher and a policy specialist. Um, he has about 20, more than, you know twenty years experience in education, uh, the youth sector. He's authored numerous high profile reports. Um, Loic is currently researching and writing his second book on how education and youth policy happens. Um, Loic was previously the chief executive of the Think and Action Tank, the Center for Education and Youth, and he's a former teacher, a youth worker, a tutor for Canterbury Christchurch University's Faculty of Education. He has also been a school governor, which earns some extra brownie points from me. Uh, he is a trustee of a number of youth and social um, entrepreneurship charities. Um, so I like I would like one of his students to have the last word on this introduction. One of his students said, well, there's a lot I could say. Mr. Menzies is a confident, outgoing teacher, always wanting you to achieve the best you can. He would demand and push you to get that high level. So welcome, Loic. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. And what a fabulous tribute from your student. It was very lovely. Yeah, yeah. When it was, I, I, was, uh, I found that just when I was clearing out my childhood bedroom the other day and I would put it away on a pile and it was a series of speeches my student had made and it was very lovely to find. It was a really nice surprise. Yeah. I, saw, I saw that on Twitter and I said, I yeah. have to, have to <laughs> include that. Well, it's a nice surprise of you to mention it. Too. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, let's... Uh, start at the beginning um how and why did you get into teaching ah oh, well um it's quite a it started a while before i even stepped into the classroom actually because um because i have this funny background well it shouldn't be that unusual but it, it, it is quite unusual is that I'd, I'd been a youth worker before and um, so i'd actually started as a youth worker and um, once i became too old to be a young person um, and i was still desperate to carry on uh, working with an amazing group of, of youth workers I'd known as a young person um, and I was fortunate to be to be asked to join join their team as a youth worker and so um, I had an, uh, learned a huge amount from them and then wondered 
wondered how and whether um, what I'd learned there might, how it could translate into the classroom. So um, as soon as I left university, I, I made my way into the classroom and, 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 found, and had, a, had a go myself at, at seeing how I might be able to support young people in a different way uh, through classroom teaching. Thank you. Um, so tell us a bit about the think tank. Um, how, why was it set up? Uh, what, does, what are its aim? What does it try to do? Yeah, so, um, well, having, having gone youth work to teaching, uh, I then started thinking, well, there's a lot of the issues I'm seeing here are, are not just um, about what happens in the classroom or what happens in the school. There's, there's a lot going on at the system level. So, um, so when I left the classroom, I, I started getting much more interested and involved in, in research and policy discussions. Um, and, and spotted a bit of a gap for an organisation that was quite close to practice, but, you know, involved um, people who had been teachers and youth workers themselves and, and which was closely connected to what was going on on the ground with young people and teachers. Um, so gradually, and it was an iterative process, um, I went about setting what was initially LKM Co and then mm -hmm. became the Centre for Education and Youth. And we always described ourselves as a think and action tank. So we tried to, to meld together what needed to happen at the system level through policy and what needed to happen um, on the ground in, in, in youth clubs and charities and schools and so on uh, in order to better support young people and, and particularly those who are, who are marginalised or disadvantaged in some way. Lovely, thank you. Um, so, um, you know, like I said in the introduction, um, you've, um, you and your colleagues have, have published um, various reports uh, over the years um, and some of, you know, they have been really influential reports as well. So uh, firstly, do you think of an area you want to research yourself or are these reports commissioned by others? Uh, so um, at uh, the Centre for Education and Youth, most of uh, the research is commissioned, pretty much all of it, um, which has its advantages and has its disadvantages in a way. Um, you know, on one, on one hand, sometimes it's nice to be able to, to, to ste steer the direction a bit more. And, you know, one of the things which would be really nice for the centre in the future is to, to do more self-initiated research. But the advantage of it being commissioned is that it's actually responsive to what people want, because I think sometimes the problem with a lot of research is that it doesn't necessarily answer the big questions that people are grappling with. Um, so the advantage of, of stuff being commissioned is that you, you get to, you know, you know what people want and what people what people are crying out for. Um, so I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of our research was quite, quite responsive and, and sometimes actually preemptive in terms of you know, spotting big issues before they came around the corner because people were starting to ask the questions. Um, so yeah, largely commission. But every now and then we'd, we'd sort of pick something that we thought, actually, we really think this is, this is a biggie and this is something that needs some extra work on. And then, then we'd, we'd find some way of, of, of uh, going ahead and, and doing, making some contribution uh, to the evidence base. Yeah. Lovely. I, I think it's important to say here that although the reports may be commissioned, the centre remains independent and it'll just... You know the topic is commissioned, and yeah. <laughs> you'll you'll do whatever you you'll publish whatever you find. Yeah, yeah. We we had some very nifty ways of making sure that we um we wrote wrote contracts and things like that in such a way that the independence and neutrality was was protected. And and it, sometimes that you know that involved having to have some pretty tricky conversations. But we mm -hmm. we made sure that we then um, we got things set up so that we could we could preserve that that independence throughout. Lovely. Um, let, so let's um, get to the heart of the matter now. Uh, the first topic I want to discuss with you um, is recruitment and retention of teachers. Um, now, this is something 
everyone involved with education worries about. Um, yeah. Lots of thought and research time has been devoted to why teachers leave. Now, you co-authored a report which looked at retention and tried to examine why teachers stay in the profession. Mm. So why, why this approach? <laughs> well, um, actually, this was one of those ones that was quite a self-initiated one where I could see that you know, lots of teachers were leaving the profession and that we needed more of them to stay. Um, so went about set, uh, starting this project, looking really tapping into teachers' motivations. And um, so my sense was that it's easy to sort of look at the economics of things and so on. Um, but actually, we, you know, no one really knew why people became teachers and why they stayed teachers. Um, and, and if we want to be able to, um, to keep more people in the profession and to keep them there because they're happy to be there rather than just because, you know, they have to be there and they don't have an alternative, then we, then we need to understand what makes them tick. Um, so that was, that was why we took the approach we did with this kind of mixed, big mix, mixed methods uh, study that, you know, zoomed in on specific areas of the country, but also compared all sorts of different groups and, and tried to understand, yeah, yeah, why they went in, why they stayed in and, and the changes between those. And, and we did, you know, a big initial study. And then we decided to particularly focus in on, on long serving teachers um, and, and what, what it was for them that kept them in for, for a longer period of time and what, what might be similar or different about their motivations compared to others. Right. Uh, any interesting research? Um, what were the main reasons? Let's, let's start with that. What were the main reasons why teachers stayed in the profession? So, so there's, um, there's kind of different types of motivations and different types of factors. Um, so classically in the, in the literature, um, you get a kind of separation between uh, what's called intrinsic reason. So things kind of linked to enjoyment of a process. So it might be, you know, people who love spending time with children or who love a subject and who get a real pleasure out of the, the act of teaching. You have things that um, are considered altruistic reasons. So that's kind of a sense of the social value of the outcome. So you're, you're trying to deliver a kind of good for society. And then you've got the more extrinsic things, which are the kind of rewards of, say, holidays and pay and, and those types of things. And then there's, a, there's another couple of things which are to do with professional mastery or the kind of culture and atmosphere of schools but those are actually interlinked with the others um, and and each of those plays a role so so what we were kind of trying to unpack was how those how those weighed up against each other and and they all play some value play some importance um, but if you take the in extrinsic things for example they quite often play the role of what we call kind of hygiene factors so things that that need to be need to be in place to stop people being pushed out um, but which aren't necessarily the reason people get out of bed in the morning. Um, so you've got those. Um, and then what you find is that actually there's different types. So one of the things we, we, we came up with in our research uh, using some snazzy, uh, snazzy stats methods uh, was that there's different teacher types. So, for example, when I went into teaching, I was I was really into the kind of altruistic bit. The, the, um, so I, I was kind of motivated by what can this do for society? Um, I didn't actually mind which subject I taught, for example. Um, that didn't really matter to me. I didn't really mind which age group or whatever. I was kind of sold on the value of doing something, uh, doing something for society. Whereas there's other people who are, for example, we kind of term practitioners who are just really 
have a love of their subject. They're, they're really passionate historians and they desperately want to kind of bring forth another generation of great historians or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have these kind of different ones. And I think sometimes where we've gone wrong in the past is to try and just look at, on average, what's the biggest motivator? So your question was, what's the biggest motivator? But actually part of the value of our approach was to say, well, there's not one big motivator. It's about the big motivator for each different individual and tapping into those motivations and uh, if, if you want to keep people there and recognizing that they'll change over time as well so someone might go in because they they're really into history and then they they realize that wow they've made a massive difference to a community and that's what they actually end up getting really excited about so at that point they become more of a, of a kind of altruist or, or, or super social teacher as we call them thank you um are there any policy implications of this body of research? Yeah, and those have come uh, been back in the headlines recently, actually, because we've had these sort of policies, for example, around bursaries to get teachers to work mm-hmm. in particular places. Um, and if it, and actually, if we want a more more nuanced approach to getting people to enter and stay in the profession, then we we policymakers need to realise actually one one approach, say that kind of extrinsic motivator of a bursary isn't going to work uh, for everyone and um, and so we actually need to think okay how do we appeal to each of those different groups for example um, another one is that um, given that we saw that people's um, motivations shift over time that has quite big implications not only at policy level but also at school level in terms of making sure that you can respond to that so you know your teacher for example who um, who went in really motivated by their subject and might have become a, a, a head of department might actually further on in their career become really passionate about about the um the more pastoral elements and if we if we don't allow people to kind of shift track if we don't manage do the kind of talent management um of of recognizing people's shifting motivations then there's a risk of not being able to be nimble about adapting to the different things that are motivating people at different points in their career uh, this makes me think that um, in that case, it's really important for head teachers and appointing authorities to really know their staff and get to know their staff over the course of the employment. Totally. Yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah. 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 Because if you know, you know, what the career pathway they'd like to take, what are their um, long term ambitions, you can mm. you can more help, uh, <laughs> you know, support them in that. Um, and and obviously that has uh, an effect on retention. Yeah, and if you look at, I mean, if you look at um, in other industries, you, you quite often large employers sometimes have kind of people who are kind of career managers or so on who help help identify next steps and who who, who listen to employees to find out what what they want from their career at different points, and and it can it can yield surprising results. Um, so I think I think that can be really valuable valuable use of time for any any school leader who's trying to keep their teachers. How should how should um, heads and um, you know other senior leaders um, go about doing this, um, getting to the to know the staff and you know at that at that motivation level? <laughs> I guess it's partly about um, about the role of middle leaders too. Um, mm-hmm. So um, so for example, uh, a head of department's responsibilities uh, can often be quite um, focused on on the the subject matter of the department but ultimately they need to be quite skilled managers of people too um so when it comes to line management and things are are you just looking at um 
how to get the the teacher to deliver better lessons or are you just focusing on what your curriculum is going to look like next year or are you uh, are middle managers really engaging with the staff in their department to understand what's what they where they want to go next and so on um and that has you know that can have quite important implications for equity too because i've done you know research on progression by different mm -hmm. groups of teachers too and we find that there's big inequalities uh, when it comes to to supporting the career aspirations of different members of staff ah, thank you um now going on to another important piece of uh, work which you were involved with was um, young people on margins um, yeah. tell us how this project came about mm. so this is yeah this was actually uh, in many ways the you know the last big thing um that that i worked on and that was published during during my time at cfey so and it, in many ways it, it brought together everything we we tried to do over the last dec over the decade before so it was it was a real really big big thing and an important thing to me um because of that so i'm quite sort of attached to it um and I guess the, the story of its origins is that because, well, the flip side of what you were saying earlier on about our work generally being commissioned is that it, it tended to focus on a specific project or a specific group of young people. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and the, but it was sometimes hard to draw out the, the things that linked those together. So we'd, we'd, you know, we'd do a report on school exclusion, then we'd do a report on special educational needs, and then we'd do a report on um, Gypsy Roma Traveller young people. And, and we'd, we'd do, look at those each separately, but we'd constantly find recurring themes. So, and, it, and sometimes the young people we'd be looking at under, under one heading or under one project turned out to be the same young people we'd look on, uh, on, on another. So this book was really about saying, okay, well, there's all these young people who, who are on the margins for all sorts of different reasons, um, but, but what are the things that link them? Um, and, and how can we understand those? So, so it's a book that's about drawing, but about presenting the different groups and synthesizing all, all the work we did over a decade, but then, then tying together the threats and saying, okay, given that, what should our priorities for action be in the sector? Mm, thank you. That's really interesting. Um, can, can you tell us about how did you go about doing it? I, I see that you know lots of young people are quoted in it. Um, so how did you go about uh, how was this um, or how was the research project um, actually carried out? Yeah well because it was um, <clears throat> it was because it was bringing together previous pieces of work um, it was it was a case of working out how can we make a coherent whole out of the different different bits we've done. Um, so, so, so it was, we weren't doing new research for the book. We were just finding a way of bringing it together. Um, yeah. so I guess one of the first things I did, which was quite funny, was, uh, I, I created a mood board. Um, right. <laughs> so I went through loads of, loads of, I went through my bookshelf and I, I yeah. pulled off loads of different books, uh, that I liked, uh, about, edu about education and youth. Um, yeah, there was a, one of my favourites was uh, there's Jarlath O'Brien's book called Don't Send Him In Today. There was uh, Daisy Christodoulou's uh, book yeah. about making good progress. Uh, yeah, all these different, uh, there was the classic Willingham, all those kind of things. And I looked at them and I, I kind of took photos of sections of them 
that exemplified uh, you know the style of each book and then <laughs> I put them all together in a document and yeah. I said oh a bit more of this a bit I like this I don't like that I think we're different because of this and so kind of we created this this mood board of, of different of different books um, and because the part because the reason for that was because uh, it's a kind of an ed- edited collection. So different members yes. of the team were responsible for different chapters. Yeah. They obviously needed to hang together and have a, a consistent style. Yeah. So that allowed us as a team to then look at that document and say, yeah, OK, what do we want this to be like? And, and what are the distinctive features that we want to, um, to com- have in each, each chapter? Um, and that yielded some specific things like, yes, we wanted to have the voice of the young people we'd met through our research and through our work in there. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the really distinctive things about CFEY's work is that it's it's quite participatory in nature. Uh, although there's although it's uh, there's a lot of quantitative work in there, there's almost always a qualitative element about kind of bringing practitioners and young people's voices to life. And we also have all have this track record of having been practitioners as well as researchers. So having met people in both cap- capacities. Jeez. So we wanted to draw those out as much as possible. Um, so there were those kind of t- t- crucial features that we really wanted to to bring through. But at the same time, you know, it's it's also the second part of the title is priorities for action. Yes. And we are a think and action tank. So yeah. we wanted to make sure each chapter also ended with a set of um, a set of kind of practical things that can be done but at different levels of the system so there's recommendations for policy makers in there but you know we can all get a bit frustrated with wait, waiting for policy makers to do something so mm. there's also you know what can you do now in your own classroom or school okay so um if i ask you what were what in your opinion were the three big recommendations of your report and then go on to say ask you how can schools and society ensure that um, no one is left on the margins? Mm-hmm. Am I allowed four? Okay, go on. <laughs> <laughs> cool, because yeah, there were basically there were kind of four big themes yeah. that came out of it, okay. um, and one of them is you know a real a real biggie that um, that people I, I've referred to sometimes as the elephant in the room that we actually need to confront, which is which is that yeah, all the almost all the groups we look at suffer from um, from financial marginalization mm. um, you know, and we, we can't leave poverty out of the picture um, and and I think sometimes people do that because they think oh well that bit's inevitable you know big dreams let's make sure that doesn't uh, yeah, wouldn't it be nice if that wasn't there but yeah, ultimately it is something we can do something about yeah. a third of children were in, in, lived, grew up in poverty in 2019 um, and and that wasn't the case previously um, so, so there is a choice there, and there are things um, schools and, and youth clubs and everyone else can do to to mitigate that. But there is also an onus on on policymakers to take that seriously. Governments have have pledged previously to to deal with that issue, uh, and, and the current government needs to do that too. Um, because because ultimately, you know, we know that poverty causes poor educational outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is. This is one of the rare things where there really is very strong causal evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think it was a chance. The book did provide a chance to pull that out, uh, pull that out, um, and, and make sure we didn't leave that out. Mm-hmm. Um, then, the second big theme um, ties into that background I, I, I referenced earlier on of having been a youth worker before being a teacher, which is just, which is about. I kind of call it demarginalizing schools, so not making this all about schools. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote an article recently for Foundation for Education Development called um, Beyond the School Gates, Education Beyond the School Gates, because that was about understanding that factors outside of schools have a huge impact on educational outcomes. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean, oh, well, therefore schools can't do anything about it. It actually raises questions for how schools go about operating um, and, and what they do. So yeah, I've presented in there three different, three different implications that might have. So, you know, is it about schools delivering services that may, they might otherwise not do? So, you know, a lot of schools deliver breakfast clubs and so on, but what mental health interventions do they deliver and, you know, how do they support, um, support families? What, what is their role? Is it, is it delivering like that? Or is it about them becoming a kind of more of a commissioner of services? Uh, is it about the way they work in partnership with other services? So there's there's big questions for the school to ask themselves about in terms of, okay, right, we know that this you know stuff beyond the school gates matters. What approach do we want to take to that? Um, because there are there are different approaches to take, and actually you know each of those three delivering, uh, commissioning or partnering approaches. Um, are, are working in different settings so 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 there's there's a case to be made for each of those three approaches um so yeah that was the third one uh, uh, sorry that's the second one sorry second one. <laughs> yeah uh, third one is around early intervention yeah um and so um so i guess on this one you kind of think that being on the margins it, it's not really a binary you're not on the margins or not on the margins you mm-hmm. kind of gradually move towards the margins and you can be more on the margins or less on the margins yeah. um and 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 quite often it takes takes a young person going a long way onto the margins before action is taken yeah. um so you know the, the worst example of this is is the horrible story that um but one parent told me about them being told that their child's um, attempt on their own life wasn't serious enough to, them to oh. get help. Oh yeah. my God. So I mean, what, what, can, you... what can be more serious than that? Yeah. So what, oh. you have to wait till they're that yes. far onto the margins? Of, uh, it's, you yeah. know, that oh. sort of thing is, yes. it's just unacceptable. Yes. Um, so, so the case for, for intervening earlier is, 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 is really a really strong one, I think. Um, and and that has that has implications that for, for for at a policy level, but also at the school level. Yeah. Um, so you know, how do you spot things early? What yeah. are the kind of light touch approaches you can take early on to avoid having to take bigger steps uh, further down the line? Um, so yeah, that's that one. Um, and the last one, the last one's. Uh, sometimes I've, in some ways, I felt bad about including this one because it's because it's the most intangible. But I think ultimately, I think it's one of the most powerful ones, and it's the one that young people raise the most often. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I kind of call it the insight that being on the margins isn't the same as being marginalised, and that okay, that's that, interesting. Yeah, yeah, but you know, you can you can sit on the edges of the margins. There is variation, you know, to go all statsy about it. You look at a distribution, you have, and there, there is always a margin to a distribution. But a young person who's on the margins of that distribution only really feels marginalised when they feel alone. Okay. Um, and so time and again, we had, we've had young people in all our research projects who just say, you know, the thing that made a difference is, is if someone knew my story, if someone knew what was going on. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think sometimes people don't want to engage with that because they think that that 
that equates to then saying um that you make an ex- or you make excuses and you don't have the expectations and and I don't think it's that I remember you know one young person a homeless young person saying I wish that the school had understood the bereavement I was going through the fact that I was sofa surfing and all of these things and she said I know my behavior was unacceptable I know that I couldn't be there but but and and that that wasn't that wasn't it wasn't viable for me to be there but it would have just helped if people had understood what was going on for me because then they wouldn't have felt so marginalized yeah um so i think i think that's a that's a that's an important one even if it's intangible and i think it has implications in terms of you know underlining the importance of a sort of professional curiosity um, I once wrote an article that was called What's Your Story? And it was about, about that idea of you know, under- teachers showing that, that real commitment to, to understanding each young person's story. Yeah. Um, there's a, there was a great um, book published about 30 years ago um, called Invisible Children that talks about cracking the enigma of, of a child who was on the margins of a classroom um, and really kind of people com- people within a school communicating and, and trying to understand what was going on for that young person um, so that they could they could be brought in. That's really, really interesting. And um, I think all four recommendations, even the last one, although it's intangible, all four of them are, I think, equally important. So, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. so. Right. Um, so it's time for us to take a short break. Um, we're sure. going to go over to um, the ads and uh, have uh, and listen to the latest educational news from our news desk. So once we've, uh, we'll come back after the ads and the news and we'll carry on this fascinating discussion with Loic. So stay tuned and we'll see you in a bit. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen great improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. 
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Schools Climate Education South Yorkshire will host its second climate conference this year. It is a free event and will feature Henry Firth and Ian Thesby, the world-renowned vegan chef duo Bosch, food upcycling organisation Foodworks and a science workshop from Amaze Lab. The event will run from the 1st to the 3rd of March and will include live and pre-recorded virtual sessions aimed at teachers and students of all ages. Coordinator Richard Souter said that Schools Climate Education South Yorkshire was set up in response to the climate crisis and the inadequate progress being made in combating it. We hope these conferences are the start of a journey for staff and young people in doing what they can within their schools and communities to both promote and advocate for change. Rafia Hussein, a secondary teacher in Sheffield, who was involved in the conference last year, said, It got the environment ball rolling in my school. We were able to self-reflect as a school and think about what we can do both individually and collectively. It certainly raised awareness. Steve Chalk, founder of the Oasis Academy Trust, has warned that the lifting of COVID restrictions in England will lead to a further rise in homeschooling. Mr Chalk said, I think it will become a forced form of exclusion for those who are vulnerable, those immunosuppressed children and staff who are put at increased risk. Also staff who are living with their own immunosuppressed children. I think we will see a group of children turning away from education. It will lead to a further rise in home education. It can be a route for those who are worried or scared. All of this will play together in some unhelpful ways. The gamble, in my mind, is that attendance among many of the most vulnerable stops or goes down, so it becomes a form of exclusion. Removing the requirement for positive cases to self-isolate puts them all at increased risk. Councils in England reported in November that there had been a 34% jump in the number of parents choosing to take their children out of school to teach them at home. The DfE is also concerned about attendance, which stood at 86.2% in secondary schools on the 3rd of February, while pre-COVID it would be about 95%. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, today I'm responding to a tweet from Michelle Stevens at M underscore Stevens Zero, pointing out to at Team English One that a lot of people don't know about the snipping tool, and she was compiling a list of shortcuts. The thread sparked a lot of fantastic responses and inspired today's Two Minute Tech. Today, I present Getting Snippy With It. In Windows, a simple shortcut combo of Windows plus Shift plus S opens the snipping tool. The snipping tool is like an advanced version of print screen. After the combo key press, a small menu appears, giving you five options. Rectangle select, which is draw a box around what you want, freeform select which is draw a shape around what you want, window select which is pick the window you want to capture, screen select which captures the full screen or replication of the print screen button. Some may say there's no point to this but stay tuned, there is. Finally there's a cross to close and pressing escape can do the same thing. If you have an interactive board you can pin snip and sketch to your taskbar, right click the icon and select pin to taskbar. Now you can press it to make screen grabs and not have to go over to the keyboard. Snip and sketch also gives you the ability to annotate on a screenshot. To make this even more powerful did you know pressing Windows and V shows your last 25 captures to your clipboard? The first time you use this, you'll need to switch on the feature by pressing Windows and V and agreeing to switch it on. Now you can take several screen captures and then paste them into the app you're presenting with. This can be very time efficient. For this week's visual version of the episode, I've made a series of clips and given some real life examples of using the snipping tool. So don't forget to check out TT Radio 2020 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. Um, we just before the uh, break, I was chatting to Lloyd Macy's, and we've been talking about um, one of the reports he, um, one of the books he edited um, while at Think Tank, uh, Think and Action Tank, um, called "Young People on Margins." Um, so we're going to. S- talk a little bit more about that, um, Lloyd, if that's okay. Sure. Um, um, one of the things you just alluded to just before the break, um, and one thing which is you know, rightfully being talked a lot about now is uh, mental health of our mm. young people. Do you think there is a crisis, of men- a mental health crisis, or are we headed towards one? Um, I think, oh, yeah, I, I hate using the word crisis, but, but mm. yeah, it's hard, it's hard hard to say we're not you know the the rise is is, is very rapid in in mental health difficulties and um, i think it was in yeah in 2004 it was about one in 10 young people who had a, a mental health disorder and it by 2017 it was already one in nine um so that's you know in terms of change change over time that's huge and, and this is you know, it's an international phenomenon mm-hmm. um and, but given given that the lack of capacity to address young people's mental health needs, it, it's hard not to see a crisis there. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, is there anything we can do to to sort of stop it in the tracks to help people who are experiencing uh, mental health issues? Uh, I mean, not only uh, obviously mental health issues are experienced by everybody. It's, mm. it's not age dependent, but because we're talking about young people on margins, I thought we'd concentrate on them first. Yeah. Um, so, is what what can we do? Um, I mean, in terms of uh, the deeper solutions. Uh, we actually really don't know why this is happening. Um, there's all sorts of, of, of theories and, and, and different different bits of evidence that are pointed to for different different theories. You know, there's the kind of 
there's the social media theory, there's the, there's the kind of stress theory, there's the parenting theory, there's, you know, there's all sorts of different theories. But really, I don't think anyone can claim that, that we know what's causing it. Um, so, so unfortunately, at the moment, I think, I think most of, most of our, our response is about, you know, how do we support young people who are, who are having those difficulties? Um, and and how do we move help them move fast? And I think the the the, uh, the urgent thing there is that the the under resourcing of services. So we, we clearly need more specialists um, who are able to support young people. Um, there, there is a, a huge shortage, um, and obviously you know there's a there's a gradation in terms of what what support young people young people are, are needing. Um, you know it's, it can be quite easy to conflate uh, poor well being with with a with a mental health. Uh, difficulty um but but you know different responses are needed at different at different levels um so so there are certainly yeah we could less specialist support might be it might be um might be appropriate for for young people who have got less less serious uh disorders or difficulties um and and that can that can reduce the the strain on the more more specialist services so again i mean that goes back to the early intervention theme uh, that, that I was talking about earlier on. Um, in the book, young people involved, uh, which uh, you know, in uh, who've been quoted in the book, um, talk about various stresses in their life. Mm. Um, so, um, do you want do you want to say something about that? What are the stresses which are faced by young people nowadays in our society? Mm. I mean, there's a there's a real precarity in this this. I mean, this ties back to what I was saying about poverty too. It's you know, it's, it is at least easier to cope with some of these difficulties if you if you're not living in in poverty and you're not um, you're not facing real difficulties day to day. Um, there's there are certainly schools of thought around around this um, it, you know, the difficulties that come from um, high pressure around exams and so on. I, I can't say I'm entirely convinced that that's that's the cause of the underlying issues. Um, but certainly, you know, young people often need help to to cope with uh, um, with exams and with 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 those types of stresses. But I think there's an underlying issue there around around resilience to stress. Um, so so uh, young people will often uh, often refer to thing, things that are causing them stress. Uh, but I think sometimes you need to look beyond that too to think, okay, what what what's what is a young person's ability to cope with different stresses too. Okay, thank you. Um, this is something which you've, you know, just talked about a little earlier. A uh, little earlier on is, um, and you know, this is another theme which was tackled in the, in, in the book was child poverty. Mm. Is child poverty inevitable? No, it's not. No. no. Uh, so yeah, you know, we we present in the in the book a, a graph of child poverty, uh, mm. showing its changing changing rates, and 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 you know, we we know that. Uh, which Gordon Brown once said, you know, this the, the, the government, you know, the government set a target to to eliminate child poverty, you know, not just to reduce it, but to get rid of it, um, and and made significant progress towards that. Uh, decisions decisions at a government level have have a real impact uh, on levels of child poverty. Um, you know, we've seen we've seen recently the changes to universal credit. You see things like you know, the the. Uh, the two child limit on uh, on child benefit um and i once wrote a wrote a blog about exactly this which you know, gives can tell you how many young people 
would be lifted out of poverty by by some by something like the uh, universe, the change of, the change to universal credit or the change to um, uh, to the two child limit. So there, you you know, you can measure how much it would cost to make those policy changes, and you can measure how many young people that would lift out of poverty. So there are there are real steps that that can and should be taken uh, to tackle that, and and a lot of the other pro the problems that the sector is grappling with um, would would be would be ameliorated by those changes. You've talked about your blogs. In one of your other blogs, you've talked about um, child poverty and the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, could you expand on that for um, a bit of, for our listeners, please? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I I unfortunately can't remember the exact ratio, but basically, yeah. you could you know something like the the two child limit. You you can measure how many months of eat out of the eat out to help out poverty uh, policy. It would the cost is equivalent to so you know for for the equivalent of a, a certain number of months of the eat out to help out scheme you could have lifted you know hundreds of thousands of young people out of poverty um with all the implications that has for um for their well-being for their educational achievement and for their long-term prospects so ultimately you know decisions are being made about what to prioritize here and unfortunately child poverty isn't the, the priority it should be Okay, thank you. Yeah, that, that I found that blog really fascinating. Uh, <laughs> I think I did it in miles of motorway too. So, <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, you know, people people really, it's really hard to get your head around some of these numbers. And I know yeah. Sam Friedman did a brilliant blog recently about sort of the um, the statistical and financial literacy of, of policymakers yeah. and the public, and and yes. you know, the the difference between ten million and two billion or whatever is really hard for people to conceptualize. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to do in that blog was to you know, take numbers of young people and translate that into miles of motorway or months of eat out to help out to try and, yeah. to try and demonstrate that it, it's not that, you know, oh, well, we can't afford to do this. Yes. <laughs> well, any, anytime anybody says we can't afford to do this is uh, I think um, I say to myself, if you only stopped and thought about the problem for a bit longer, <laughs> And then worked out that if you don't any, do anything right now, it's going to cost you much more yeah. when you eventually do have to do it yeah. down the line. Absolutely. I think it's funny. I've, a number of times in the last few weeks, I've heard uh, yeah, really informed people from a policy world talking about um, issues with the way Treasury, the Treasury does things. Yeah. Um, and a, a kind of tendency to focus on the primary remit being managing the purse strings and, you know, managing what goes out or what goes in, which just functions against the kind of cost cost benefit um, and, and the long term thinking, because it's about, you know, what is the budget going to look like next year? What is the borrowing going to look like next year? So it really um, militates against um, these the kind of thinking that we, we should be seeing on, on something like this. Thank you. Um, so. Talking about um, young people, um, let's let's move on to talking about um, or discussing children who have special education needs. Mm. How can school schools meet the needs of these children, and are are we doing enough to meet their needs? Mm. I mean, I think the second part of that question is easy to answer, which is that we're we're definitely not doing enough. Not, yeah. <laughs> uh, the second question, uh, in terms of what to do about it, is obviously harder. 
and I think it's important to say, you know, I am not a, I'm not a, a SEN specialist. I'm not a SEN practitioner. Mm. Um, and there are people infinitely better, better qualified to, to, to comment on that than me. I, you know, my, my research has looked at this from that kind of mixture of policy and practitioner level. So in, in, a, in a way, half of what I, I can say on this is a, a kind of policy level thing. And, and part of this, it touches on schools. Um, so I guess, um, you know, a few, a few sort of directions of travel to consider um, are, are, thing, are things like, yes, having acknowledged that this is a specialist, this, this requires a, a certain amount of specialism and expertise. We need to think, how do we make sure people have more of that specialism and expertise? Um, so, you know, we've got, we've got some great work going on to try and Im improve that. So, you know, things like the NPQ in, in special needs leadership, um, the work of the whole um, whole school send uh, mm -hmm. group and um, you know, CFEY we did a set of, of videos about specific send conditions all of these things can help to 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 raise everyone's level of expertise in in supporting young people because the, you know the first front is obviously uh, the, the mainstream teacher in the classroom making having an understanding um, of different conditions of young people's needs and how to support them so you know, those thing, those things can help to get more expertise into schools. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, do you think there are effective practices or examples of good practice um, of schools working together with parents um, of children with special education needs? Yeah, and I think um, part of this, I think, is about the extent to which the special schools and mainstream schools um, are kind of collaborating and, and, and working closely. So mm -hmm. you know, there are increasingly examples of, um, of mats, for example, that might include a special school and a mainstream school, sometimes a, um, a, some AP as well. Um, and I think that that helps to break down some of the rigid barriers sometimes and can make it easier also for, for staff to move between different types of settings and, and learn from what from each other and what goes on into them. So in a way, you've got a real a be, a benefit in terms of um, spreading expertise around the system. Mm -hmm. And the flip side of that is you also have a benefit in terms of young people being able to move move between them more fluidly. So you know, whether it be um, in terms of moving to a SEND setting or to an AP setting, um, sometimes the, mo the movement only goes in one direction yes. and it, it's quite hard to have reintegration and so on but if those schools are part of yeah, they can be mats or they can be other kind of federation or collaborative arrangements um but i think maximizing the ease reducing the kind of barriers to moving moving back or getting the support you need for a while and so on um is, is quite an important area um uh, that makes me wonder whether maths are actually thinking along these lines. And I know there are maths which have special schools and alternate profession, um, but are, are you know, especially the larger ones, are they thinking about you know let's open a special school because the need is there and because of all the, all the um, you know advantages you say, mm. you've just pointed out? I wonder if the if the thinking along that line is happening or not. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I, I've seen it happening a bit more when it comes to AP recently. So I've spoken to to heads who are looking to to open a kind of on site bit of bit of AP rather than having to 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 try and bring in some of those benefits. Mm. Um, and and they're doing it very much with those things in mind. So 
so I'm seeing it there. I haven't I haven't seen as much of it when it comes to to special schools. So I, I hope yeah. I hope I hope that is happening and, and mm. happens more. Yeah, I mean, yes. If if somebody who's um, who's a leader in a mat is listening in, maybe this is something yeah. you, you need to go back and discuss with your trust boat. Yeah, and it'd be great to hear from anyone who is doing stuff like this. And it, and it may be that there are other forms of of collaboration going on that that, that would be good to hear about too. Yeah, the mat I am, and we've got a a, a unit on site, um, oh, right. which um and and you know the the best thing about that is 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 about sharing good practice and sharing expertise across the um, across you know the, oh, the, the the main school and and the special school. And um, it's, it's actually quite timely, isn't it? Because I know there's been a bit of talk about um falling roles because of the current demographics so about yes. how we about we're about to have a situation where where the pupil population falls for a while you know as it has ballooned previously um so that population will go down and there's this whole kind of talk about oh well what what will happen to the school estate and the, and the spare space that that will free up yes. um and and some people you know quite rightly upset that, that there's a risk that this means kind of selling off capacity that might be needed again in the future when actually it could be it, that could be repurposed into into great new um send provision ap provision you know and so on yeah. all right thank you um any thoughts on how teachers can be supported to meet the needs of children with uh, special education needs um, I think there's something around around sort of working with TAs. So I know that you a lot gets said, said about how um, how teachers and TAs work together, and there's been you know a history of of, of research on this. Um, and I think that perhaps you know one of the things that that we could see more of is is support to make sure that um, that TAs and teachers know the best ways ways of working together. Um, you know that's something that someone like Rob Webster knows a, a lot about. He's a real expert on that, and I know there's been, you know, there's been there's been support for for the spreading of of um, good practice from from his research. Um, but I think we could see more of that, and that that needs to be scaled up. Thank you. Yes, um, I think everything we discuss it just comes back to joint up thinking across the sector, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. But I think I mean I think that. Yeah, you often hear people say, "Oh, we just need more joined-up thinking," and so on, and it can become a bit almost like a, "Oh yeah, motherhood and apple apple pie." Yeah. I think one of the things I've always tried to do in our research is to point to, to examples of of how that's being done and and case studies of that because because that makes it real and and can point to things that people might not have done otherwise. Yeah, true. Um... So we've talked a bit about schools and um, actually one thing which came to my mind while we were on the break was, um, you know, how you said that children who you uh, or young people you you talked to um, sort of said to you, if only somebody had listened to my story. Mm. Um, now recently, um, and this is something which had occurred to me when uh, Dame Rachel D'Souza and the Children's Commissioner's Office published um, The Big Ask and mm. The Big Answer. How good are we um, at the national level of asking our young people their opinions or to tell us their story? Yeah, not good enough. And it was, okay. I'm, I'm glad that um, when Rachel started started her time as school uh, children's commissioner by doing that. Um, I think it was a really important piece. And it's interesting to hear the extent to which that has actually made many politicians look up and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so it, it's interesting when... When that does happen, how much power it has, you know, I was at a, um, 
a Fed event in Westminster recently and there were some young people there who spoke and you, you just noticed that people respond to it very differently um, compared to how they do if you sort of plonked yet another report on my desk. Um, so, so I think it's important in that, but it's also important in terms of keeping, a, keeping us true and giving us really valid insights into, into what's going on. And it, I just don't think it, it happens as much as it needs to. Yes, that's 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 very true. Yes, I I, I did enjoy that for that specific reason because um, I you know because it's the first time so it's such a huge survey has been done yeah. on a national level. Um, yeah, and uh, hopefully that's going to um, make an impact. Yeah, uh, well, it, uh, it, yeah. <laughs> Rachel was saying that um, that because um, Nadim Zahawi was previously a pollster. Yeah, the fact that the fact that the sample was so large and so on, and, and yeah, he sort of was was interested in the in the rigor of a sample and so on, and kind of it passed, it 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 met the bar for for quality, uh, yes. and, and meant that he he uh, he it couldn't it couldn't be ignored, uh, which is interesting yes. in terms of isn't it that balance of you know the uh, the authentic voice and mm. the sort of technical validity of it. No. That's... Do you think um, there's a place for a young people teacher tap type thing? Yeah, and I have come across organisations that that would like to do something like that. So um, yeah, I think I think there are there is um, a, yeah there's a, we've got a young person um, who is on the uh, youth council at the Foundation for Education Development uh, who runs something called their uh, Pupil Power. Um, which 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 is trying to, to to support young people that to have a voice. There's a there's a great initiative called Shout Out. There's various initiatives, but none of them have that kind of scale that has given Teacher Tap so much power, and which gives the big ask so much power. Yeah. Um, I think it's quite hard to to scale those things up. Um, but it would be brilliant if if there was. So particularly, if you know, with, particularly Sorry, given the, particularly given the sort of issues around. Uh, young people from the age of 16 to 18 not not being able to vote and the whole issues with voting age yeah. and so on in a way you'd almost give have an alternative source of voice for those young people exactly so if anybody's listening who, who would like to think about doing this get in touch with laura <laughs> and, and you know get her expertise on how yeah. to set this up because yeah. it, it would be awesome if somebody could do something like that yeah you know, uh, yeah Okay, um, so we've been talking about schools and and teachers and education in general. Um, any discussion on education invariably includes discussing accountability. <laughs> um, do you think schools are under too much accountability pressure? Yes, I do. I do, but I and I find the thing is, it's a it's a real kind of fine calibration job, isn't it? When it mm. comes to accountability, you know, uh, to too tight and it it narrows things and causes all sorts of problems uh too loose and there is a chance that where where standards are too low and not good enough for young people that that that's missed and action isn't taken um so i guess it's a it's a case of kind of fine calibration as i say um and I, I don't think we've quite got the right balance right now so you know i've written for example with um with john jerem about you know one one approach to um just slightly softening things, which is around using three-year rolling averages um, rather than year-on-year -year accountability and to just kind of protect schools from some of the noise um, and, and allow them to think more long-term. So you know, that's particularly difficult now that we've had the last two years of, um, of dodgy data or whatever. Um, 
so so that's that would be hard to implement at this point but those kind of approaches um could could you know maintain the benefits of accountability but but make sure that they're um slightly less brutal and i've you know i also think there's there's a case for shifting the way we we do offsted gradings mm-hmm. um you know i used to be a massive i used to yeah think there were huge benefits to having the outstanding grade um i'm no longer convinced of that um and i think that if if schools weren't battling to be outstanding and were instead doing something a bit deeper but we still had the accountability to make sure that schools are are reaching a good standard um but but beyond that the it becomes a case of kind of school to school school improvement or um you know, supported improvement and so on um then you know the battle for the gold star might be might be less um, less aggressive um so i think there's things like that that might um that, that might help i think there's um we've i used to talk about the kind of balance like a sort of seesaw of mm-hmm. you've got the kind of quantitative accountability in terms of exam metrics and so on and the qualitative metric from from ofsted um and and theoretically we should get a good balance between those two um and i and i think that now that ofsted is not just looking at data um or or is looking slightly less purely at kind of quantitative data um and looking at schools a bit more on the round then that might that might help rebalance that seesaw in a way that it used to be a little bit too skewed towards the quant i think um so there's there's things like that which i think are kind of adjustments i'm i'm not for i'm not a kind of like abolish the measures abolish accountability and so mm. on um kind of person but i think i think there are there are tweaks we can make um talking about offset grades uh, you said you're less of a fan of the outstanding uh, mm. thing now so do you think it should be you're good you're good enough or you're not good enough yeah i d- i can't, i think i do yeah on balance i think that's um there is a question of whether there's a difference between kind of needing immediate intervention needing additional support mm. versus good enough you know so where you've got it's clearly different where a school's not good enough and need some some extra intervention versus actually there's some real serious safeguarding issues or something where immediate you know something you need something much more dramatic so it may be that there's a kind of three categories rather than two um, yeah, I was just about to say that. Yes. Things. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know quite quite what's right, and obviously this isn't this isn't something that can easily be changed because it's actually set out in legislation. So it's not yeah. like you know sometimes people say to Ofsted, oh, why don't you just do this or do that? You know, they don't have yeah. the freedom to to make that change themselves. It requires yeah. statute. It's actually you know from a policy maker's point of view, I think it's incredibly unlikely to happen because I yes. think that um that. parental pressure uh, is likely to to want that grade um mm. in general because because of how parents use uh, use Ofsted so <laughs> i don't actually think this is a thing that's that likely to happen um, no. and i tend to be quite pragmatic in terms of being like okay well what could happen um but i think that, but I, i still think it probably should happen yeah i i suppose like i said that's um, it needs legislative change and and in the grand scheme of things um are we at a position or at, at a place where we can spend time and energy looking at changing the legislation to change the the grading system or <laughs> could we spend our time and energy and money on on something which something else yeah i mean 
I mean, I think that it actually would be it would be a sufficiently valuable thing for it to potentially worthwhile. I just don't think it's politically viable. Mm, okay. um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, if it was just a case of putting it into a, into an education bill and changing it, then, yes. then it would probably be worth it. But the thing is that it would be it, I, I suspect it would you know, it would poll very badly. Um, mm. uh, and it's it's not what parents necessarily want. Um, so so therefore, I think it's unlikely to happen. I, I know of a couple who got married and were looking to buy a house and, you know, they've just got married. They don't have a, f- a family yet and then no plans to have a children, what, three or four years down the line. And when they were looking at houses, they started looking at Ofsted reports oh, of yeah. schools, which yeah. are in that catchment area. And this That's is something, yeah, it is, you know, it, anything can happen in five years time. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the economists have looked at this in terms of the, I think it was, um, Becky Allen, who did who did a years back a study of the you know the impact on house prices, maybe it was Simon Burgess, you know, one of those very clever quantity people, yeah, um, who you know looking at what impact it has on a house price to get, and, and it's mad, isn't it? Because sometimes those are outstanding grades that were achieved, however many years before, and yes. which by the time a child is actually going to school, let alone finishing school, could yeah. be completely different. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, but you know that's how it, how it works, and I have this with my friends even at the moment because my friends are at the age where they're having having babies and, yes. uh, <laughs> and they're forever saying to me oh I'm gonna have to get your advice on schools I'm like oh goodness me <laughs> <laughs> yes um talking about outstanding um I, I suppose um hearing what you're saying you, you're quite a fan of um the exemption for outstanding going now yeah I think that needed yes. to happen yeah yeah, they need I mean, anything, it's, yes. there's a whole debate about whether right now is the right time to be making those obs- uh, those inspections and so on. I, I can see why um, teachers and school leaders are incredibly upset about um, yeah. inspectors coming in in some quite difficult circumstances at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'm aware I'm aware of that and I, I realise there's issues there. But in terms of the overall point around uh, removing that exemption, I think I think it's really important. It does, yeah. Like, like you say, you know, if you've got, if you were outstanding 10, 15 years ago, that doesn't necessarily mean you're still outstanding. No, no, yeah. No. Okay, thank you. Um, going on specifically to read some, uh, something else now, um, literacy and being able to read. Mm. Uh, obviously, that's really, really important. Um, now, is there a reading crisis? I know you don't like the word crisis, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, is there one? Uh, and if there is, how can we go about resolving it? Ah, I think you must have been reading uh, my former colleague uh, Will's recent blog about this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, is there a reading crisis? So there's this. I mean, I, th- I think clearly the fact that there are um, so many young people who leave school without without the standards of literacy which will allow them to to flourish in the future and to you know pursue 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 as i call it to write their own life story um i think uh you know that is unacceptable mm. and um it, it's certainly not good enough that, our, that that's happening which is why you know, some often people say oh you know we can't just look at these narrow things of numeracy and literacy well you know it, it really matters that you are able to read when you leave school um, without even going into the adult literacy things and how we support people who have left school who don't have the literacy that, that they need. Um, so if you want to call that a crisis, uh, then, then fine. Um, yes, I think it, then there's the question of, do we have a pandemic-induced crisis? Mm-hmm. Um, there, I'm, there I'm less convinced. 
Um, I was initially convinced, and then John Jerram told me I was wrong, and John Jerram's usually right. Um, <laughs> and so, um, you know, he, he looked carefully at the data. He did a great blog for Data Lab about this, sort of actually measuring, um, measuring the extent to which uh, pupils are behind in, in reading and to, which, to what extent the gap has widened. And it's really bizarrely not as big as you'd expect um, and not, not all that dramatic. Um, and I was talking to a, a head of a map recently who was saying, you know, we, we can deal with this as long as the kids come to school. Um, mm. this, this is, you know, it's, it's not a, it, it's a kind of confusingly not large catastrophe. I think Daisy yes. Christodouli has also done some really good work on questioning whether learning has been lost or whether it's decayed. Um, mm-hmm. And the analogy I like here is around um, around languages. Um, you know, so years back, I spent uh, quite a lot of time in Nepal and I got quite good at speaking Nepali. Um, yes. And then, but if you asked me to speak Nepali now, uh, it wouldn't go very well. Mm. But if I went back to Nepal for a month, mm. I suspect a lot of it would come flooding back. Um, yes. And so has the learning been lost or has it decayed? You know, there is evidence mm. from the kind of more longitudinal work um, that's out there, but that actually a lot of what initially appeared to have been lost is is coming back quite quickly. Um, so, so I think there's there's a lot of there was a lot of alarmism about, um, and you know, I was part of this because I was really worried about it, um, about learning loss and to what extent that might precipitate a crisis um, in uh, in literacy and numeracy. So I wrote more about numeracy and maths, where there, there do seem to be bigger bigger losses. Um, and for various quite understandable reasons. Um, but yeah, I'm not convinced that we have a pandemic-induced crisis, uh, but no, our, you know, our system is not getting young people to where, where, where we would want them to be. Talking of the pandemic, do you think, uh, what, what uh, I mean, obviously children have been affected in, in various ways, but um, what do you think are the ways they have been affected, um, which we will need to, you know, mm. sort out pretty quickly? Yeah. Um, so I think the important thing to note here is how divergent um, experiences have been. Mm. Um, yes. You know, pandemic has been very, very different for very for different young people. Um, so you know, you can look at things like average well-being. And average well-being hasn't shown, you know has, doesn't show show as bad effects as you might have feared. But if you look at um, what's happening to at the kind of severe end. Um, in terms of you know serious mental health difficulties or the exacerbation of difficulties for people who already had mental health difficulties, then the picture is really bleak. Um, so, so I mean, you know, there's some people who said, "Oh, well, when kids come back to school, we need to press pause on education and just concentrate on um, on on getting people's well-being back on track." Well, actually, if on average and most young people were doing okay, then that's probably not not necessary or a great idea particularly given that young people themselves said they wanted to get back to normal in most cases mm. uh, if you look at research by impact rate um so so i think it's a case of needing to again understand each young person's story understand yes. what experiences they had spot as quickly as possible the the young people who've had a really rough ride um and and make sure they get the support they need as fast yes. as possible um, but not treating, you know, not treating treating it as a kind of monolithic um, issue for everyone. Yeah, and, and perhaps not panicking and and trying to do it, you know, panicking and, and no. doing something 
quickly when you know when you need this time to evaluate what's happened yeah for a lot of young people what they what they really wanted and they said was just you know an opportunity to spend time with my peers yes. an opportunity to get back to normal and uh, so the last thing they wanted was to have a really unnormal experience when they went back to school yeah. um yeah yeah, because um, my my niece and nephew who are in Pakistan, they've mm-hmm. um, they've been off and on school. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when the schools weren't totally shut down, what they did was um, have um, you know split teaching. So mm-hmm. half the group would come in on uh, Monday and Tuesday. The other nice. half would come in on Wednesday and Thursday, mm-hmm. um, and then alternate groups coming in on on Fridays. So you uh, had okay. you know. So you reduced the number of people in the room, yeah, um, and you spaced them. You were able to space them out, and the people who were at home got the same lessons um, through that. So I asked my niece when when school stopped, you know, when she went back full time, that what 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 was she looking forward to, and she said, uh, you know, she named a few of her best friends who happened to be in that in in the other group, which um, <laughs> she hadn't seen them, oh, and she yeah. said, I just want to go and play with her. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, yeah. How have they coped? How are they? How are they doing? Uh, they're doing. They're doing fine. Um, yeah. You know, um, I, I always worry about how how much data is coming out. Whether uh, we've got enough data about what COVID rates are like are mm. uh, uh, actually on the ground. But it seems to be that you know it. We haven't. Pakistan hasn't suffered as as badly as some other countries. Uh, all, again, with the caveat that I'm not sure about how good, uh, how extensive the data is. Um, they they've been they've uh, they've done lockdown in a slightly different way because you know Karachi is is a huge huge metropolitan. Mm. So instead of locking down the whole of the province or whole of Karachi, they've locked down um, areas. So right. if, yeah. for example, you know if um, you know rather than knocking the, uh, closing down all of of London, they'd say, right, too many cases in Chelsea, so let's um, lock down Chelsea and let right. the rest of the... But then they had to do that because Karachi, you know, Pakistan isn't a rich enough country to have um, the furlough scheme, etc. Right. So, yeah, and yeah. there are quite a few people who depend on, on their daily wages, so you had mm. to manage that. So I, um, so the way they did it was, you know, let's, let's not... Uh, keep everybody at home let's keep everybody at work um but let's do, they called it the smart lockdown right that they would knock lock down uh, those regions where the cases went high um keep the arrest open and make sure that there was no traffic between the two regions mm. um and manage that way and schools like i said they went online um quickly and um, um like my i mean i'm not sure how the others manage but my niece and nephew school uh, that's how they kept numbers um, in school low right. by but by, by splitting the class up and getting in ha- um, you know half the class in one day and half half in the other day. So, mm. but from Friday it's all back to normal. They've ah. they, um, they've res- uh, lifted all restrictions, mm. um, and the whole school is is now back to normal on from Friday. And they've got mm. exams coming up. So my niece is not that happy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yes, apart from that, they've they've been fine. Thank hmm. you. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um. Okay. Um. So, you've recently come. Sorry, back. sorry. Um, we need to run the ads again. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. We, <laughs> yeah. Now, if you, you like, sorry, Joe, producer here. Um, if you like, we can just run the ads and then I can pause it. Um, so you've got more time to talk. Do you want to do that? 
Oh no, just yeah, run the run the news on the ads. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, you'll only have about five minutes after that. Are you okay yeah. with that? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Sorry, guys. That's all right. <laughs> This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls' School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Schools Climate Education South Yorkshire will host its second climate conference this year. It is a free event and will feature Henry Firth and Ian Thesby, the world-renowned vegan chef duo Bosch, food upcycling organisation Foodworks and a science workshop from Amaze Lab. The event will run from the 1st to the 3rd of March and will include live and pre-recorded virtual sessions aimed at teachers and students of all ages. Coordinator Richard Souter said that Schools Climate Education South Yorkshire was set up in response to the climate crisis and the inadequate progress being made in combating it. We hope these conferences are the start of a journey for staff and young people in doing what they can within their schools and communities to both promote and advocate for change. Rafia Hussein, a secondary teacher in Sheffield, who was involved in the conference last year, said, It got the environment ball rolling in my school. We were able to self-reflect as a school and think about what we can do both individually and collectively. It certainly raised awareness.
Steve Chalk, founder of the Oasis Academy Trust, has warned that the lifting of COVID restrictions in England will lead to a further rise in homeschooling. Mr Chalk said, I think it will become a forced form of exclusion for those who are vulnerable, those immunosuppressed children and staff who are put at increased risk. Also staff who are living with their own immunosuppressed children. I think we will see a group of children turning away from education. It will lead to a further rise in home education. It can be a route for those who are worried or scared. All of this will play together in some unhelpful ways. The gamble, in my mind, is that attendance among many of the most vulnerable stops or goes down, so it becomes a form of exclusion. Removing the requirement for positive cases to self-isolate puts them all at increased risk. Councils in England reported in November that there had been a 34% jump in the number of parents choosing to take their children out of school to teach them at home. The DfE is also concerned about attendance, which stood at 86.2% in secondary schools on the 3rd of February, while pre-COVID it would be about 95%. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, today I'm responding to a tweet from Michelle Stevens at M underscore Stevens Zero, pointing out to at Team English One that a lot of people don't know about the snipping tool, and she was compiling a list of shortcuts. The thread sparked a lot of fantastic responses and inspired today's Two Minute Tech. Today I present Getting Snippy With It. In Windows, a simple shortcut combo of Windows plus Shift plus S opens the snipping tool. The snipping tool is like an advanced version of print screen. After the combo key press, a small menu appears giving you five options. Rectangle select, which is draw a box around what you want, freeform select which is draw a shape around what you want, window select which is pick the window you want to capture, screen select which captures the full screen or replication of the print screen button. Some may say there's no point to this but stay tuned, there is. Finally there's a cross to close and pressing escape can do the same thing. If you have an interactive board you can pin snip and sketch to your taskbar, right click the icon and select pin to taskbar. Now you can press it to make screen grabs and not have to go over to the keyboard. Snip and sketch also gives you the ability to annotate on a screenshot. To make this even more powerful did you know pressing Windows and V shows your last 25 captures to your clipboard? The first time you use this, you'll need to switch on the feature by pressing Windows and V and agreeing to switch it on. Now you can take several screen captures and then paste them into the app you're presenting with. This can be very time efficient. For this week's visual version of the episode, I've made a series of clips and given some real-life examples of using the snipping tool, so don't forget to check out TT Radio 2020 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. Um, I've been chatting to Lloyd Menzies and I've been having so much fun chatting to him. I forgot what the time was like. (laughs) (laughs) It's always a pleasure to chat to you. Um, So we've just got the last few minutes for the show. Um, What I'd like to do in this is um, you've just gone back to the classroom to help out. How was that like? 
Oh, it was lovely. Yeah, it was great. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was something I thought you know it would be might be helpful to do because I, I I knew that a lot of the schools in my areas were quite short staffed, um, given the pandemic, and um, and you know I miss I miss being in schools. Um, so it was really nice to get a chance to to just go and be an extra pair of hands for a day a week. Um, so really enjoyed really enjoyed it. And um, you know, I liked to, uh, hoping I was useful, but <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Are you still doing it, or was that has that finished? Now? No, it was it was up till half term. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've okay. said you know yeah if things get bad again, I'm, I am around and, and happy to help. Yeah. Has that tempted you to go back full time? I wouldn't do it full time. No, I'm 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 a kind of I love. I love the research and the policy yes. stuff I get to do, and I love combining the kind of um, system level stuff and the classroom yeah. stuff. And you know, as you know, I'm a bit of an obsessive rock climber too, which means yes. I spend quite large chunks of a year um, quite away when the weather's right and so on. So no, it wouldn't it wouldn't fit with um, with what I do, but it was it was a great opportunity to get to do yeah, it. That, that was going to be my my last question, but now that you mentioned it, uh, <laughs> rock climbing. Now every time I look at your pictures, I get a touch of vertigo. How, you know how how did you get into rock climbing? <laughs> um, so I was kind of brought up in a family of of, of uh, kind of ad- adventurers. Uh, so both my parents did a lot of mountaineering, and they did lots of uh, lots of kind of big big sailing adventures too. My, my dad managed to sink a boat on his own in the middle of the Atlantic and oh, be well. rescued by an oil tanker. So I kind of grew up with all this sort of mad adventurous stuff going on um but it was actually uh, and so I kind of dabbled a bit um whilst at university and stuff and then when I took up when I went moved to London to teach I knew that I needed something something that was different in my life something that would mean I hung out with people who weren't teachers and didn't want to talk about the classroom all the time um and which gave me a real break from the classroom so I joined a climbing club uh, in Cambridge in, in London called Not So Trad um and that is how uh, how I got into climbing, um, and it was amazing because it meant that you know every every weekend I'd be well lots of weekends I'd be going away and be in the mountains and hanging off a cliff and and when that happened you're not necessarily worrying about you know what went wrong with nine C on Friday afternoon. Yes. Um, so so yeah, it was great, and that's that that's what got me hooked. Did you find obviously you 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 went in just for you know uh, just to help out and it wasn't your class who, who you got to know over the year and everything mm. and and you know uh, you know leaving that aside have you noticed anything different about teaching this time around yeah i mean it's it's changed so much since um since i was there yeah i was teaching be- before the era of social media and mm. you know, even even what kids are studying has changed because you know i was teaching pre ebath and so on so I had always, you know, I was teaching French conversation and suddenly having loads of kids taking French in a way that they, they didn't used to. So all of all of that stuff was there were there were things like that that had changed. Um, but there was that I was also surprised how kind of naturally it came back. I think the first the first, the first moment I realized that that maybe I still had it in me was I, I was being shown around the school. Um, and I saw, I saw one child at the back of the classroom who wasn't doing what they were supposed to do. <laughs> um, I gave them this look and they immediately started doing what they were supposed to be doing and looked <laughs> looked very bashful. And I was like, that was my teacher stare. I remember that. <laughs> so all these little things like that came rushing back. And then, then when I did do my first cover lesson, uh, I had to get them to, to read the, the cover work from the textbook. Um, 
And suddenly I was like, oh, I know how to get different kids in the classroom reading and how you move it around and make sure that everyone gets a chance at reading. And just all this stuff that we're not, if you'd asked me about it, I wouldn't have remembered. Just mm -hmm. just came back naturally, which is amazing. And I think you know, anyone who's considering going back to teaching, uh, I think I think you, you'll be surprised by how much how much comes back and, and don't be too worried about it. Oh, thank you. That reminds me of um, Laura McInerney's um, Twitter bio. She says, um, uh, once a teacher, always a teacher. So tuck your shirt in, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, just, we've just got, you know, one, um, one minute. If you had, if I gave you a magic wand to change something in education, what is the one thing you'd change? Oh, that's such a tough one. Uh Oh, I think something to do with making sure that each school had access to a sort of team of paraprofessionals, so to speak. So kind of people like um, social workers, youth workers or whatever, um, who could, you know, who had the expertise and had that different relationship to be able to support with some of the things that impact on a school, but don't fall under a teacher's traditional remit in which schools aren't aren't resourced to do but end up having to do um just so that you know on one hand that would mean that every kid had access to the specialist support they needed um and on the other hand it would mean that a teacher's workload was reduced and that they were freed up to to yeah. focus on on the job of teaching lovely thank you that, that, <laughs> that, that, that was you know i put you on the spot but that that's a really good thing um, <laughs> to have come up with uh, so um i think we've come to the end of the show um and thank you so much like it's been an absolute pleasure chatting oh, to you great. and thank yeah. no, thank you for giving up your wednesday yeah. evening um and uh, to joining us uh, on teachers talk radio um once again thank you so much Anytime. um thank you, thank you. um Brilliant. and listeners um you've got time to go off and make yourself a cup of tea or something and then do tune in and back to because we've got ed finch and toby Paincook and you know their shows Ooh. is all, uh, always really worth listening Legend. to yes <laughs> so that's uh, that's the next show um but from me and from loik it's a uh, good night and um once again thank you loik thanks everyone cheers thank you. hope to thank see you, you. Soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.